Well, good morning. It is good to see you all here. If you have your Bibles, I would invite you to go ahead and turn to Acts chapter 7. Uh, we are going to continue in our study through Acts this morning. Uh, but I do pray that even on this Mother's Day, uh, as I was preparing this week, getting ready, uh, didn't feel led to necessarily prepare just a Mother's Day sermon. But what I saw, that what we'll see this morning and actually the next couple weeks, is a God who's faithful uh, uh, to his, his plan and his purposes and his people. Uh, and so this morning, I hope as we look at Stephen uh, and his defense to the... Uh, uh, to the religious leaders here who have accused him, uh, that you will see a God who is faithful uh, to his plan and his purpose and his people. Uh, and so, Mom, that's you. He's faithful to you. Uh, woman, he is faithful to you, uh, to all of us. He is faithful. He's a faithful God. Uh, so just to recap, uh, we finished up uh, la- last week, we finished Acts chapter 6, uh, and where uh, we saw that, that Stephen, uh, at the beginning of 6, where he was a, so here's a recap, He's a, he, was a, he was chosen to serve the widows uh, of, the, of, of the community there. Uh, he was one of the seven that was chosen, uh, and then shortly after that we see that he is full of grace and power, uh, that he's performing signs and wonders among the people, uh, he's growing in favor among the people, and because of that, he's, what he's doing is going to synagogue, to synagogue throughout uh, Jerusalem there. They said that there were uh, over 480 different synagogues uh, throughout Jerusalem, and so the way those come about was, uh, is for Hellenist Jews, or, or Jews that lived in Gentile areas, when they would come to Jerusalem, they would have their own, uh, their own church, if you will. Uh, and so the, the idea of a church on every corner uh, didn't start with Jones County, it was already here in, in Jerusalem. So they had, uh, if you were from Alexandria, you hung out Alexandrians when you came into Jerusalem. So anyway, what Stephen would do is he would go from synagogue to synagogue, uh, performing signs and wonders, preaching Jesus to, uh, as the one that God had sent. Uh, and so what had happened was, is evidently he, he kind of went around to all of them, and so they sent like their best and their brightest to go debate Stephen. Uh, and it didn't work out good for him. And uh, some commentators actually believe uh, that Saul of Tarsus uh, could have been there, which because uh, Cilicia, well, the, the kind of the main city in Cilicia, there was Tarsus. And so there's a great chance that Saul, who would become Paul, the greatest mind that we see throughout the New Testament, uh, could you imagine an unredeemed Saul debating a spirit-filled Stephen? Uh, and so here they are in the synagogue, and it actually says that they could not withstand the wisdom and the power in which he spoke. So even Saul, the greatest mind, couldn't stand up to Stephen and his, 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 his word that he was sharing. And so because they couldn't uh, overwhelm him or they couldn't beat him, they conspired against him. And so scripture says that they, they instigated uh, false accusations or false witnesses of Stephen or against Stephen. And they, they accused him of four things. Uh, the first thing is that they actually, in order, how, the, how it's written is that, that he was speaking blasphemous words against Moses and God. And you can see a little bit or a lot of the heart of the people there by what was important to them mostly. There, what was the first thing they accused him of? Of blaspheming Moses, not God. It should be the other way around. 
Uh, but anyway, so they, they, bla- they, they, they accused him of blasphemy against God and Moses. Then we see in verse 13 of chapter 6, against the law and the temple. So that's where we ended last week. And it says that those who were there, when they looked at him, when they gazed at him, that his face was like the face of an angel as a picture of God's glory resting upon Stephen's face. So that's where we ended last week. All right, everybody with me? All right, so it's important for us to catch the the four things that he was accused of, right, was blasphemy against God, blasphemy against Moses, against the law, and the temple. Because now when we get to chapter 7, and in verse 1, when the high priest says, are these things so? He says, are these things true? What say you is what the high priest is saying. Are these things true about you? What Stephen does, and it's beautiful, He spends the next 51 verses addressing all of those accusations. He starts with God, then he goes to Moses, then he goes to the law, then he goes to the temple. And he does it very craftily, and so it's awesome. And so the, the high priest says, all right, Stephen, are these things true? Stephen hasn't spoken up for himself yet. He hasn't said, no, no, these things are, they're lying. And, he, and so the high priest says, are these things true? And, and before I dive into the text, I, I thought about this this week. Stephen, we don't know a lot about him. But what we see in chapter 7 is Stephen wasn't half-heartedly believing these things. Like Stephen knew what he believed and why he believed it, and he was ready to give a defense for it. Like this idea of Jesus wasn't just like, oh, this sounds cool, this sounds comfortable. No, Stephen, in his great mind, understanding the Old Testament, he, he knew what he believed and why he believed. And listen to me, he was ready to give a defense for that. Then I got to thinking about myself. <laughs> like, you know, I, I, I study and I prepare for sermons, but do I really know why I believe what I believe? Child of God, churchgoer, do you, do, you, do you know why you believe what you believe? And can you be able to express why you believe what you believe? Stephen is standing in front of these religious leaders and very clearly articulates why, as Peter says in 1 Peter 3.15, it says, In your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you. I was just, this I'm not even to the text here, but I was just, I was confronted by the scriptures. That's what I love about scriptures. Sometimes it's not even, that it's not even the meat of the text, but it's like, hey, Justin, are you, are you ready to give a reason for the hope that you have? Are you prepared, child of God? Do, do you know why you believe what you believe? It's what we call apologetics, the, the, the defending of the faith, but it's also not just the defending, but it's also a presenting of truth. It's not just, I can tell you why you're wrong, but let me tell you the beauties of why these things are true. Uh, and what we see with Stephen is he does this. Titus, uh, we read this in Titus, verses, uh, chapter 1, verses 9 to 11, says he must hold firm to the trustworthy worthy word that is taught. So that you might be able to instruct in sound doctrine. So there's the, the presenting of truth. And then and the second part, and also to rebuke those who contradict it. There's the defense side of it. Uh, he says, this is why. For there are many 
uh, who are insubordinate, empty talkers, deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party, they must be silent. So what was the, what was the object? Why was Paul writing here uh, for him to be of sound doctrine so that he could defend the faith so that those who are teaching false doctrines can be silenced? There was a purpose in this defense that, that we're reading about. And I, I wrote this down, child of God, we must be able to give defense for our faith. Like we must know enough about Jesus of this idea of Christianity isn't just because my grandma told me to come, but that there's a God in, who, in heaven who sent his son to redeem me. And it wasn't just this fluke plan, but what we even see in the text this morning, that, 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 that God is sovereign over all of the universe. He created all things, sustains all things, and it, it, before he created all things, already had this plan in place to redeem mankind. Philippians chapter 1, this is what Paul says about his ministry in verse 6 and 7. It says, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work and you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace. Check this out. Both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. And sadly, most many, I can't say most many churchgoers can't give a defense for what they believe and why they believe it. And that's not me dropping a hammer on you. That's us and that's the application of what we're going to talk about. May, may, may we seek to understand why we believe what we believe and being able to explain those things. Ephesians, this is why we believe that teaching Scripture, like just from the Scripture, is the most important thing we can do as a church body. That's why we commit ourselves to teaching God's Word. Uh, Ephesians says it like this in verse 11. It says, And he gave the apostles and the prophets and the evangelists and the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we attain the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure, the stature, the fullness of Christ. Check this out. So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning or craftiness or deceitful schemes. That's, their, that's my desire here at Crosspoint as we devote ourselves to the word that the people of God fall in love with the word of God and the spirit of God would, would establish them that we are rock solid in what we believe that we're not tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine anymore, but we have conviction of the word of God. So, now let's go to the text. That was just a side note. Hey, he's welcome to join me up here. Does not bother me one bit. Y'all were way more distracted than I was. I'm good with it. I'm, I passed a cross point, like screams and movements, and nothing bothers me. Acts chapter 7. So the high priest says, are these things so? Stephen has been accused of blasphemy against God the law, Moses, and the temple. So this is how the next two weeks are going to look like. This morning, I'm going to 
really go from verses 2 to 37. Uh, and so, Justin, that's going to be a long sermon. It's not. Uh, it may be. I don't apologize if it is, but we're going to walk through it. And so I'm going to deal with the first two things of, of Stephen going through his own defense of he's going to address the, the first accusation of blasphemy against God, and then he's going to move to the second accusation of blasphemy against Moses. And then next week, Luke will take the other two whenever it's, uh, where he addresses the accusation of blasphemy against the law and blasphemy against the temple. And then on the 22nd, we will wrap kind of Stephen's story life up and look at the beginning of Acts chapter 8, right? And we'll see what happens after his death. And then we're going to take a pause in the book of Acts for the summer. So we have three more weeks. We'll get to the end of, or the beginning of chapter 8. So anyway, let's dive in. So are these things true? So Stephen, first of all, he's going to start with the accusation that he's a blasphemer of God. And this is the big one, right? This is huge. If Stephen is a blasphemer against God, then he has no, no grounds to talk. He needs to shut his mouth and move to the side, right? So Stephen's going to begin to do a pattern in, the, in this chapter 7 that we'll see over and over again. The first thing that he does is he wants to gain his listeners. He's a good preacher. He wants to gain their attention. And then after that, he wants to kind of give a defense for himself, and then what we'll see all the way through the chapters that then he kind of flips the accusation against them. Uh, so it's against him, and all of a sudden he'll turn it back to them. He'll put the mirror in front of them, and then he'll present Jesus to them. So we'll see it very on. So anyway, he says, all right, my turn to speak. So check out how he starts in verse 2. He says, brothers and fathers. That's, that's a great way. He, he immediately is saying, hey, I'm with you. Like we're brothers, and he, so when he's talking to the fathers, he's talking about the Sanhedrin, the religious leaders, brothers were his fellow Jews there. He, he, he's, he's, he's connecting himself with them, because what, what is he trying to do? He's trying to show them he's not a blasphemer against God. Right, everybody with me? So by the way, this is like, I'm, I'm going to try my best not to dig, dig into all the history of what's going on, that he's, he literally goes from the covenant with Abraham all the way to like the Babylonian captivity. And so anyway, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not walking all the way through those, uh, but what I, I want you to see is intent. His intent in this first part is to see, for them to see that he's not a blasphemer against God. He says, brothers and fathers, hear me. Check out how he says, the God of glory. And he says, the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia. So this, he's crafty. He's getting their attention because you know what the Jews like to talk about? Their ancestry. They like to talk about themselves and how, who their fathers were and who the, the 12 patriarchs were and their salvation was found in their ancestry. And so he starts with, hey, brothers and fathers, the God of all glory spoke to our, or appeared to our father Abraham. I love this terminology of God of glory. All throughout the Old Testament, God has many names. Uh, God the provider, God of peace, uh, uh, El Shaddai. You see all these names. And so by, by Stephen calling him the God of glory, if you think about glory, what it is, is, is all of God's attributes combined. And so really what he's saying is, he, he's saying God of all glory. He's literally saying he's encompassing all of God's attributes and names by saying the God of glory. He's associating, listen to me, my God is your God. The God of the Old Testament is the God that I'm talking about. He's the God of glory. So he says, brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he's in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran. And he said to him, Get, go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. 
Then he went out of the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. Check out verse 5. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length. Literally means he had no dominion in the land, but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring and after him, though he had no child. I want to point out a couple things here. Not only do you see what he calls him, and he, he's going to his ancest, the, the ancestry of the Jews there, but notice how he says, he says that the God of glory, he appeared to Abraham. That it was God who called to Abraham and called him out. And actually it says in verse 4 that it was God who removed him. What is, what is Stephen trying to get them to see? That, that he's tracing God, that God is the sovereign source of all redemptive history. That their ancestry, like what they, what they, what they, hold, what they stake their claim in, what their, all their confidence is in, it didn't start for them. It started from a God who initiated a conversation with a guy named Abraham. It was God who started this thing. It was God who appeared to Abraham. We don't know how, Abraham was a pagan. He, he, he worshiped false gods. And all of a sudden we see that God appears to Abraham. God called him. He's tracing the lineage of their faith to this God. Everybody with me? So right now, they're saying Stephen is a blasphemer against God. So what he's doing, he's, he's backtracking, and he's going to start back to this God, the God of their father, Abraham. Everybody with me? This means yes. I know they say, Justin, this is it. just follow with me. They're, they're tracing, he's tracing it back so that they will see that he, 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 he worships the same God that they claim to. All right? And what he's going to tell them, and I think I wrote this down, is that the Christianity isn't a condemnation of Judaism, it's the fulfillment of it. it, it is, he's not standing up saying, you got it wrong, you're a pagan. No, what he's saying is, listen to me, what we're preaching is the fulfillment of what your whole religion is built on. Like, Jesus is the fulfillment of all these things. That, that's what he's, he's not sitting there to condemn them for being a Jew. He's saying, hey, See what your whole religion is pointed towards. And we'll see God's faithfulness to his own plan despite man's rejection over and over. Notice this, that this our father Abraham, he says that God had promised him an inheritance. But look at verse 5, he says, but he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot sling, but the promise to give it to him as a possession to his offspring after him. God gave him that promise that he would have this land, this inheritance, and his offspring before Abraham even had any offspring. And what we, why, the reason why Abraham was the, the picture of faith or the father of faith, if you will, is because he lived, his whole life was lived in the promise, not the possession. Like his whole life was, yeah, he had a son, but he, he almost wrecked that, didn't he? I, mean, I guess he kind of did, and now there's war in the Middle East forever because of it. Uh, but... The picture is, is that, that Abraham's life was lived not in the possession of the land. He never, he never stepped foot in it, but in the promise of it. And I'll come back to that in a little bit. And so he starts with their father, Abraham. And, and then and go to verse 6. It says, and God spoke to this effect that his offspring. So now he's going to fast forward to this prophecy of what's going to happen uh, in, in Egypt. It says, but he spoke to this, that his offspring will be sojourners in a land belonging to others, who would, who would enslave them and affect them for 400 years. And he's going to come back to that in a minute. But in verse 7, he says, and I, But I will judge the nation 
that they serve and said, God, and after they shall come out and worship me in this place. And check this out. And who's giving who what a covenant? God is giving, he says he gave uh, him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob the, of the 12 patriarchs. Man, Stephen is crafty. So, so he's starting with the father Abraham. Then he goes to uh, the, the, the covenant that God the Father made with Abraham. And then, then the, the, the people they really like to talk about was the 12 patriarchs because probably one of them would go, yeah, yeah, I'm from this line and, and I'm from this line. And so he's bringing them in, right? He, he's got his audience. They may be thinking, maybe we're not too far off. And then, and then verse 9 comes. And he says, but these patriarchs who your whole salvation is built on Jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. The prophecy about God's people would end up in a land as sojourners in slavery is a direct result (laughs) of the jealousy of the 12 patriarchs. You follow me? And, And so we're seeing God's sovereignty here, but what we're seeing is now Stephen is about to flip the script. Who, who's the one that blasphemes God? Who's the one who rejects God? Well, here we see it even the patriarchs. Uh, jealous of Joseph, sold him into slavery, but God was with him. Did you check the difference there? So now he's, he's moving to, and there's, so Old Testament, there are like direct prophecies that we can see that are written. And then there's like types of prophecy. And Joseph is one of those types of, of prophecies of Christ. And so check out that he was jealous. They were jealous of Joseph and they sold him into slavery. Why was Jesus sold out? Because the religious leaders were jealous. You see that in Mark. But even though he was sold into slavery, what does it say about that God was with Joseph? So you see even him... Craft, you know, I, I, I think he's being very crafty and, and pointing Jesus because they knew that Jesus was sold into slavery. I mean, sold, sold uh, because of jealousy that the, the, the Judas sold him out. Uh, but it says that God was with him and rescued him out of all of his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh and king of Egypt, who made him ruler over the over Egypt and over all of his household. Check out verse 11. Now there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan and great affliction, and our fathers could not find food. And when Jacob heard that there was a great, there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our father. So there's these 12, uh, there's the, the patriarchs of, uh, of Israel are now going back to Egypt, right? Because that's where the grain is. And verse 13 says, on the second visit, Joseph, the one who had been sold into slavery himself, is known to his, he made himself known to his brothers. And Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. Verse 14, and Joseph sent and summoned Jacob, his father, and all his kindred and 75 persons and all and Jacob went down to Egypt and he died and he and our fathers and they carried him back to Shechem and laid him in the tomb that Abraham had bought for the sum of silver from the sons of Hamar in Shechem. So here's, here's this, this type of Jesus. So uh, God, man rejected Joseph because so Joseph was, was God's chosen. Joseph was God's anointed. If you read Genesis, you see that there was special favor on Joseph. And just as God sent Joseph, you, read, you follow me? God sent Joseph. He ordained Joseph. He, he chose Joseph. Israel rejected him. 
They blasphemed the one that God sent. You see him flipping the script here. But just like, take this, a man rejected Joseph, but God chose him, delivered him, and exalted him to give grace to even those who sold him into slavery. I mean, I know I'm 2,000 years later and I know the gospel, but that sounds a lot like Stephen is craftily showing, hey, you, you missed it. You missed it. So there, he, he's, so he's, ultimately his defense is, no, I'm, I'm not a blasphemer of God. Actually, your forefather, our forefathers were. But he doesn't stop. And so this, this obviously, we're going to leave you on a cliffhanger this, this morning. It's not, the story's not going to finish. And so keep coming. So but the second thing, so they accused him of blasphemy against God, right? So we, we caught that. And he defends himself saying, no, actually, our, our, our forefathers were that. Next is he was accused of blasphemy against Moses. Moses, the, the guy, right? Like, that's who they listed first in the blasphemy. And so we pick up in verse 17. It says, but as the time of the promise drew near. This is the promise that God gave Abraham of the land that he inherited. So whenever that time was drawing near, uh, God, that God had granted Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph, and he dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants, to, to give their infants up. The ultimate, the, the, the infant boys were killed so that they would not be kept alive. And at this, check this out. So God had ordained Joseph. Patriarchs sold him into slavery. Now, 400 years later, they're in bondage. And what happens in that bondage, in this time happening, and at this time, Moses was born. God sending another servant. Everybody with me? At this time, Moses was born, and he was beautiful in God's sight. And he was brought up for three months in the his father's house, and when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own. And Moses was instructed within all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words. Again, in this text, we will see that he follows the same pattern. He's going to get their attention. So there he, he's talking about Moses and how Moses was beautiful in God's sight and that he was sent at a certain time and that he was, he was smart and he was all these things. And, and again, we see here that it was God who brought Moses about. It was still, he's still pointing that God is a source of redemptive history. This is defense number two. He says Moses was born in the time of great bondage and the people that he was beautiful in God's sight. If you jump down to verse 25, it says, you know, after 40 years, he, he decided to go see his people. In verse 25, it said he supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand. They did not understand. What had happened is that Moses went to see his people, and they were being oppressed, and he actually ended up killing one of the Egyptians. But the Israelites did not understand. In verse 27, they ridicule him. and says, but this man who was wrongdoing his neighbor thrust him aside and said, uh, and saying, who made you a ruler and a judge over us? So you, there's pictures we have to see. There was somebody who God sent, and there was the people of Israel who rejected. We saw it with Joseph and the patriarchs. Now we're seeing Moses, and at first the people were saying, who are you? Who's made you our ruler? 
Who made you the boss, if you will? They ridiculed him. Verse, check out verse 30 again. And so we've seen God sovereignly working. He's now when the 40 years had passed. And so he, he went and fled to the backside of the desert of Midian. And so 40 years had passed. And it says an angel appeared to him in the wilderness. And we know the story that the angel appeared to him in a burning bush and, and called him back to Egypt to go free his people. We, this is like... So Israel's history, they're, they're all about this. Yes, yes, yes. And then look at verse 35. This Moses, whom they rejected. He's flipping the script on them again. He, he draws them in, then he says, no, 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 I'm not the one that's blasphemed. Moses, it's, it's your forefathers who's rejected him. Saying, who made you a ruler and a judge, this man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of an angel who appeared to him in a bush. I need you to catch that because that's the, the, appeared to him by an angel in the bush over and over again. Stephen talks about angels, and we'll see it in his final defense at the end of the chapter. So he says, yes, God sent Moses at a perfect time. We're under bondage to free our people, but our fathers rejected him. They blasphemed the one that God has sent. God sent him as the ruler and redeemer by the hand of an angel. The same Moses that God was using to lead them for 40 years in the wilderness, through the, through the desert and wilderness. They rejected the very man that God had sent to be their ruler and redeemer in Egypt. And this same Moses who they Say that they love, verse 37, this is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. That even Moses prophesied that there would be another servant to come. So we see halfway through his defense that what he's done is said, yeah, you accuse me of this, but actually it's, it's you who are the blasphemers. Is you who have rejected God and rejected Moses. And what we're seeing the next two weeks is that, that you've, you're, you're the blasphemer of the law and of the temple. So, Justin, what are the take-homes from this this morning? This morning, as I was sitting there, I began to think that when we read the first couple chapters of Acts, we keep going and even in Jesus' life, that the church, the disciples, the apostles, they had a great accuser, right? They, they were accusing them of blasphemy. They were accusing them of these atrocious, life-threatening things. But Stephen could stand there in all confidence and assurance. Why? Application number one is because God is faithful despite even our unfaithfulness and that he sovereignly rules all of human history. And listen to me, child of God, maybe this will encourage you this morning. Maybe this, we see these accusations against Stephen, and we see Stephen's whereabouts to just stay committed. And, and the reality is this morning, Scripture says that the, the, the Satan, our enemy, is the great accuser of the brethren. We're not being accused, being accused of blasphemy against the temple and, and the law and Moses. But the reality is, is that for all of us who are child of God, that we have an enemy, he's called the great accuser. And that day and night, he, he stay, he's before the throne accusing the brethren. But you know what he also does is he accuses the brethren in their own, in their own spirit, in their own hearts, their own minds. And the reality is this morning that some of us are, 
being accused of, of not being good enough or, or uh, not being enough or uh, whatever the enemy may be whispering to you this, this morning, child of God, that he's accusing you of not being this or not being that or uh, a fake or this, that, and the other. What I want you to know is just, just as Stephen had a great accuser, we understand that he had an even greater advocate. That we see him at the end of his life, he says, and I'm going to get ahead of myself, but he's, he's standing in the pit, and he, and he looks up, he says, Behold, look, I see the Son of Man standing at the right hand of the Father. Yes, they were accusing him of these things, but he had a great advocate in heaven being Christ Jesus. And so, child of God, mom this morning, woman who's hurting, father who can't, can't, can't get things figured out, the enemy's accusing you of your weakness and your struggles over and over again. I want to remind you that you have an even greater advocate who's at the right hand of the father saying he is mine she is mine i bought him with my precious blood he's redeemed she's redeemed she's more than a conqueror in christ she's got it because i've made her mine that's what i want to encourage you with this morning is that listen yes stephen he had great accusations but he had an even greater advocate butch that he had the actual sovereign lord of the universe standing day and night beside his father pleading on his behalf So we see that the God is faithful. We see the story of Israel over and over again. They rejected. They rejected Joseph. They rejected Moses. They blasting the law. They rejected God's idea of the temple for his presence not being made with hands and things like that. And over and over again, they rejected. Listen to me. But God still sent Jesus. Like he still, his plan cannot be thwarted even in their unfaithfulness because he is faithful to his own covenant and his own plan. And somebody needs to be reminded of that this morning, that whatever's going on in life, that God is faithful. Somebody needs to be reminded this morning because you've been unfaithful, let's be honest, you've been unfaithful in your relationship with, with the Lord. Guess what? He's still been faithful to you. He doesn't regret saving you. He doesn't regret calling you his. He is faithful even in our unfaithfulness. So how do we respond to that? As we return to him, we confess our sin. We confess our unfaithfulness. Yes, child of God, even you can confess your sin to the Lord. It's not a one-time thing. It's a life thing. That when I sin and I become unfaithful, what draws me to repentance is I know a God who is faithful to me. That my sin doesn't, doesn't, divorce me from his promises and his blessings. God is faithful despite our unfaithfulness. He sovereignly rules all of human history. And I say this a lot. If he can do that, then he's got my little short life too. Right? <laughs> if he could, listen, maybe you didn't catch the beauty. Like, in the Old Testament, what's like the biggest climactic moment? Right? It's, it's the Exodus, right? It's, it's the salvation of the Israelites out of Egypt. How did the Israelites end up in Egypt in the first place? Because it's a sin of the patriarchs. Like, like <laughs> if God can work all of those things according to his plan, then he's got my short little life here in Jones County, Mississippi. Number three take home is be bold in the face of adversity. I'd say, Justin, like life or death situation, he says, all right, here we go. This is what I believe. And in doing so, he indicted everything that they believed. But he was bold in the face of adversity. 
fourth thing is study the scriptures to be able to give a defense and present the truth for what you believe and why you believe it. Like, I hope this morning that the Spirit will encourage you, encourage all of us for this Christianity thing not just to be something we take very lackadaisical because what we see, and actually this is the first one, this dude's going to die. And because of his death, not like in the same equation of Jesus, but we're here today because Stephen's boldness in the face of adversity. You know why? Because after Stephen's death, there's a guy named Saul who's going to become a believer, and his mission was to take the gospel to the Gentiles. And that's us. I think most of us are Gentiles, but maybe some Jews in here that I don't know about. Blessings to you, blessing by birth and blessed by faith. And so study the scriptures to give a defense and present the truth. And number five, I just wrote this last minute. I, I thought about Abraham who, who lived in the promise but never experienced the possession. Trust God in his promise until we experience the possession. Like, and I'm not, I'm not talking about like confess and possess it here, y'all. Like that's, <laughs> you know better than that. What I'm saying is, is that God has promised an eternity with him. Like the promised land is heaven. It's, it's eternity with him. And sometimes it may feel as if like he's not really taking us to the promised land. Like did you know that whenever, whenever God brought the Egyptian, I mean the Israelites out of Egypt, like instead of going like the, the direct route, like Egypt to the promised land, literally was just like straight out what he did was like he kind of did this kind of took him around. I'm, I can't go that way, but literally took him all, Daniel, get out of my way. He took him, he took him all the way around the world, right? And obviously they, they came there and because of their lack of faith, they were in the wilderness 40 years. But what we see is sometimes in life, we feel like that promise of eternity, that promise of heaven, it's just, it's just, we're just not getting there. Like it's not happening. Listen to me. Trust God with a promise until we experience the possession. And may the, uh, may the longer we live, the desire, the taste of heaven grow sweeter in our mouths and in our ears and in our nose. May, may the, the closer, listen to me, each day we live, we're another day closer to eternity. And my prayer is, is that when we think about this promise of possession, we don't think about it just in the things that God gives us, but it's actually God himself. That God promises to be with us for all of eternity. That's why heaven's heaven. All right, like if you got to heaven, right? I know I got to be quiet, but if you got to heaven, and let's say we got there and there were, there were streets of gold, or a street of gold, or streets, if it's plural, singular. Anyway, beautiful size. Like what if, even when you got there, like today's a mixed emotions for many of us, right? Like I miss my mom today. And at the same time, I get to see my wife be an incredible mother. Like it's a, it's a mixed emotion. Like what happens if we get to heaven and everything that we've dreamed about is there? My mom's there. Or a loved one you are missing is there. There's no more pain. There's no more sickness. There's no more anything. Everything's great. What happens if we get there and everything's there, but Christ is not? Would we be satisfied in heaven? If the answer to that is yes, then we've missed the, we missed the point of the possession of having G, being in God's presence for all of eternity. 
So, that's nowhere on my notes, but trust God and his promise until we experience the possession. Hey, listen to me. He will get you home. Somebody needs to hear that. He will get you home. So just, man, this stuff sounds crazy. Stephen's one of the reasons why. One of the things that God uses to build my faith, this dude gave his life for this thing we call Christianity. Have you trusted in this same Jesus? Because what happens is is Stephen's going to kind of put them all on the same playing field, but then he says, but if you miss Jesus, you miss everything else. It doesn't matter if you're born a Jew or not. And I would say to you, it doesn't matter if you're born in Baptist church or anywhere else. If we miss Jesus, then we've missed it all. If we miss Jesus, then there's no hope. But in Christ, there is hope. In Christ, there is peace. There is joy. There is life. And a promise of a better place than this thing. And I'm thankful for that. Man, I'm tired of this old world, and I'm only 35. I look at the world and go, why don't we keep having kids? It's because I, I want there to be more image bearers. I want, I want God to get more worship out of people's lives. But the reality is, man, I'm ready to go home at the same time. Right? I want you to have that assurance too. If you need to talk or pray, I'll be standing here on the front. Luke and Paul and I think Ryan's going to be out, for, out here for a little bit. If you need to talk, just grab us. If you want to feel comfortable talking to a man, we can connect you with a lady as well. I want to pray for us, but I want us to respond in a way that God's leading us. I know I was all over the place, but I'm hopefully God encouraged you this morning. Father, we love you. God, we thank you for your love for us. God, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you that you are faithful through the ages. God, that you, even in our unfaithfulness, God, you're faithful to us. God, that we can stand in the face of adversity. Maybe not with all the understanding in the world, but in confidence that you're ruling and you're reigning. God, you don't ask us to understand it all. God, but you call us to trust you with it. God, I pray that you give us this morning the, the gift, the freedom to cast our cares upon you, to let go of things that we can't understand, to trust you with it. God, for the one who's been wallowing in the accusations of the enemy, God, I pray that you will remind them who they are in you this morning. God, for us, I pray for all of us there, God, that your spirit will create in us an even more of a hunger and a thirst for righteousness, for your word, to want to, 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 to desire to be able to give a defense, not so that we look good, but God, that we can, we can share the good news and share it clearly and passionately and boldly. God, if there's anyone in here this morning who has not trusted in you, 
God, I pray that your spirit would continue to draw them, that they would trust in Jesus, the one who was betrayed, sold, denied, killed and buried. God, you raised him and you exalted him in a place of power, and now he alone has the power to grant forgiveness to even those who reject him. So God, I pray, I pray that he, he frees people this morning and saves people. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen.